AI-assisted software delivery refers to the utilization of artificial intelligence to assist, enhance, or automate various phases of the software development lifecycle. AI can be used in numerous aspects of software development, from requirements gathering to code generation to testing and monitoring. The overarching aim is to streamline software delivery, reduce errors, and ideally reduce the time and costs associated with software development. Birgitta Bokeler is the global lead for AI-assisted software delivery at ThoughtWorks, and she joins us in this episode. We discuss how the latest advances in large language models are revolutionizing software development. This episode of Software Engineering Daily is hosted by Jordimon Companies. Check the show notes for more information on Jordi's work and where to find him. Hi, Birgitta. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jordi. Thanks for having me. So tell us a bit about your background. Uh, you just um, started a new role at uh, ThoughtWorks, but give us a bit of, uh, um, of a rundown of your uh, exper- previous experience, uh, both at ThoughtWorks and in general, and uh, and yeah, description of what your remit is now, because it's really interesting. It's going to drive this conversation. Yeah, sure. So yeah, I've been a developer for over 20 years now. And um, for the time of that, that I've been full-time employed, all of the time I've spent in tech consulting. So right now I work for ThoughtWorks. Um, ThoughtWorks is a global software consultancy. So we write software for our clients, but also with our clients. And even before that, I also worked, I worked for Accenture actually for seven years before I was at, uh, at ThoughtWorks. And um, uh, my, my current role now, uh, I've been in that role for about six weeks now, <laughs> is, uh, has the fancy title of Global Lead for AI-Assisted Software Delivery. And what that basically means is uh, that I um, get to spend my time uh, talking to a lot of people in ThoughtWorks about what they're currently doing uh, with, uh, in particular, of course, all of the generative AI uh, trend and hype that is happening right now. You know, how, how they are using tools powered by generative AI, but also other types of AI uh, to support the software delivery process. And coding, of course, is the most obvious thing that is being talked about a lot uh as well but um, then also beyond that right like how can this actually make us more effective not just faster but also more effective at software delivery there's something special about code that makes it a excellent candidate for generative ai can you explain why i mean it's it's kind of obvious to me already that a anything structured that is that that is open about its own structure its own definitions and so forth it makes that object a perfect candidate to be uh, statistically analyzed and, and therefore generated, right? But there must be other, am I missing anything? What makes code, source code in particular, so suitable for, for Gen AI, by the way? I mean, first of all, I think also as we're among techies, we also need to be a bit more specific when we say Gen AI. So I was talking about AI first and generative AI, but of course, what we're specifically mostly talking about at the moment is large language models, right? As one form of generative AI, there's a few more as well, right? So and large language models are really good at pattern recognition and then kind of like uh, synthesizing, recreating, mimicking those patterns again, right? So they're really good at, uh, put to put another way, at translating one form of language or one form of tokens into another. And so when we're doing the code generation in, in this context, we're basically translating, transforming natural language into code, right? We're transforming a comment into code or a list of requirements into code or and, and they're just really good at that. And then it's also about transforming one, like let's say we need to migrate code from one language into another, from one system into another. 
from one standard into another. So wherever we find things where we need to translate one thing into another thing, and it's based on 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 patterns, that's where we can try and see if a large language model can can help us do that. So you so then the the um, if we think about this in if we think about AI in sort of like Venn diagrams or the the biggest the biggest diagram the biggest circle would be AI. Then within AI, we've got Gen AI, and then within Gen AI, a subset of it is large language models. But there are other options within Gen AI. You're saying, yes. So that is my understanding. I'm actually not like a um, a data engineer or a data scientist or machine learning expert. I'm I'm in this role as the domain expert for software delivery, right? Using these tools, but of course, I'm trying to understand as as much as possible and as much as I need for the role of you know how this works, but. Yeah, from from what I understand, this is kind of how you how you can break it down. And um, I think like one other form of generative AI that I remember right now would be like I think it's called GAN, right? Uh, adversarial networks, something like that. But you know, please don't nail me down on all this terminology. But yeah, the focus of this conversation is actually LLMs applied for to um, software delivery in general. So no yes, that's the big I, change I, that has exactly. happened in the in the last year or so, right? That is now uh, triggering all of this like amount of hype and innovation and energy. Yeah. So Martin Fowler, I'm sure 99 percent of the audience knows who I'm talking about. Is a fellow colleague of um, the Gitter. He's got a splendid um, books, uh, research, and blog. And in, in it, in it, you published already i think is it three memos already four memos there was one it's that three we in recording. The, yeah fourth is on its way today oh actually, nice yeah. okay <laughs> so check the all the articles tagged as generative ai in martin fowler's uh blog because there's just a few i mean this is very new at least six or seven and one is begitas which is a collection of memos uh, so she it's it, it's describing her journey into this new role that she described and uh, I, I really like them, by the way. The late, latest one is two two days old. We're recording this on the 3rd of August. I think the latest one was um, uh, the first and another one is coming. So for those, so you, what, the first thing you've done in your new role is actually create a mental model of what is LLMs, what, what is the definition of LLMs applied to software delivery, right? Is that right? Yeah, like uh, I've looked at the tool landscape and kind of trying to understand how these things fit together. So... I'm actually also a member of the group in ThoughtWorks that curates the ThoughtWorks Technology Radar, which is a pretty popular publication. So maybe some listeners also know about the Technology Radar. And as a person in that group, like there's so many uh, technologies that get thrown at us by other people in ThoughtWorks and we have to all put them into like, you know, I have to put them into a meta model to understand like what tasks they fulfill, how they compare to others, right? Like, and uh, so this is usually what I do there as well. And so for for these tools, I've also tried to kind of see, okay, there's, GitHub Copilot, there's Tab9, there's Codium, there's ChatGPT, there's uh, something called GPT Engineer, something called Ader. There's so many things, right? So I need to Code like kind Whisperer. Of, code Whisperer, of course, yeah. yeah. So there's, there's like yeah, yeah. so many things. Like I have a like whole little mural full of like tools that I could potentially look at that are popping up all over the place. And so the way that I think about them is like, I guess the simplest way that you could do code generation or uh, more broadly speaking, like coding assistance by LLMs can be multiple things, not just code generation. It can also be us finding information faster in our context, or it can be uh, uh, explaining code to us. So um, quote unquote reasoning about code um, with the model. So it can be other tasks as well, right? 
And so the, uh, I guess the most straightforward way to do that, that probably a lot of people have tried and experimented with is go to a, a, a chat interface like ChatGPT, give it a prompt and say, I need to build a, a functionality that looks like this. Please generate some code for me in, let's say, TypeScript or Java or whatever, right? Or ask it a question about uh, how, how do I install dependencies with Gradle or something? I don't know. <laughs> Um, so that's the most straightforward way, right? But um, uh, for that, you also need to know a little bit about prompting and maybe you then you need a lot of time describing what your context is and what your code looks like and all of that. So um, uh, a lot of the the other tools like Copilot, Code Whisperer, Codium, Tab9 and so on, they build kind of a layer between you as the coder and the um, large language model in the backend. So um, so there's usually uh, not just in the coding space, but also in other spaces with LLMs, there's like a prompt composition layer or prompt orchestration layer. It's also sometimes called in between what the user is prompting and the actual model. And then these tools um, apply like additional, uh, yeah, additional logic to how they actually send the, the prompt to the model. So um, let's take the case of tools like Copilot Code Whisperer tab nine. So those are tools that are integrated into your IDE. And as you type, they are um, they are giving you suggestions, right? So these IDE extensions are that prompt composition, prompt orchestration layer. They take, you know, okay, what's the what's the information before your cursor, after your cursor? And they also look at open files. So which files of the same type do you have open? And then they apply some kind of heuristic to uh, um, enrich the prompt with additional context from your IDE. And that then makes it more powerful, right? Because um, uh, it is directly in my context from the user experience uh, uh, perspective, but also um, there's a tool that is kind of like trying to enrich the prompt for me, right? So that would be another type of tool. And then, so those can be in the IDE or in the command line interface, um, but these prompt composition layers can also happen uh, for other types of tasks or in other types of contexts, right? So um, we have, for example, um, some teams that build themselves like a little team assistant where you also have this prompt composition layer and the team is actually maintaining it. And um, this, uh, this application already has kind of hard-coded, this is a description of our architecture, of our tech stack. This is a description of our business context. So every time I would use this tool, the prompt would get enriched with those things. So let's say as a product owner or an iteration manager, I want to write a user story and I use this tool to kind of go into a back and forth with a large language model that's asking me questions about my user story to help me write a better story, right? Then I don't have to go, these are the personas, this is what the application looks like, you know, the basics about that because it's already in the tool. And also the, the, this prompt composition layer has some good prompt engineering practices that I don't have to learn about. So some advanced patterns about how I do this back and forth so it kind of spreads knowledge across the team by having all of this ready-made context there, you know, like a description of the architecture, description of the business context, but it also helps uh, um, spread some uh, prompt engineering skills across the team because you don't have to know all those things yourself, but it's kind of encoded in this little application. Oh, there was so much to unpack there. Thanks so much. Uh, about Starting with the beginning, about I was laughing when you mentioned the ThoughtWorks TechRadar, which is a tool that I so much love. Um, I was, I, I mean, one of the curators. I mean, there's plenty. You are one, right? You mentioned it. Um, but I've bugged so many curators to include the technologies that I used to work for or that I used to like. 
So yeah, you must be sworn with them. Uh, just to be to complete a bit the picture that you said, you mentioned plenty of vendors, plenty of open source projects. Um, confusingly enough, you didn't mention the the. I mean, not that you were confusing, but uh, uh, Sourcegraph and Google have decided to make this space a bit more crowded and slightly more confusing by releasing two products, two LLMs for code, code assistance, that are called exactly the same, Cody. Uh, I think Google's called Cody with an E, uh, so it ends with D-E-Y, and Sourcegraphs is called Cody with a Y at the end. I could get them wrong, by the way, because they are so similar, so congrats on those. And apparently they have perfectly good uh, products, by the way. Uh, nothing, nothing wrong with them. Um, but yes, um, about the specifics that you, the mental model that you that you build for yourself and uh, and for anyone to enjoy in, in the blog post in Martin's uh, blog. It, it's great. I, I agree with you. Um, one thing came to mind that um, that in this last bit, when you were mentioning team, I, I can't remember the title that, or the persona that you were referring to, but th those people that build the, the sort of like prompt um, interface in between, I, I can see that being really effective to expand and cross-pollinate or help um, with uh, policies, with best practices, maybe with coding best practices, because they are already input into the um, prompting inter interface that is, is being created. Did I understand you correctly? Would that allow for those coding be best practices and sort of like boilerplate and applications to be spread out to any anyone new coming to the team, for example, and, and using that... Um, that um, code assistance that has already included these things. Yeah, that's actually spot on because um, our colleagues in, in China who um, who came up with this approach and other ones have been using it the most so far, they always talk about this from the perspective of uh, spreading knowledge and knowledge sharing and talking about software delivery as like a heavy knowledge, heavy knowledge work and um, that this is like a key factor. So um, what, they're, um, um, what they are trying to do with this is uh, spread the domain and tech knowledge across the team. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the nice thing is also when you think about, you need like a good concise architecture description, you need a good concise description of your business context. This is something that every team should have anyway, but that we often don't have. Right. So, and now having a tool like this, giving these things an additional purpose, you actually create documentation, not just for other people to read, but you have an interest in keeping it up to date because it becomes executable as part of your daily tool chain, right? So that part of knowledge uh, um, exchange is interesting. And then the other thing is um, upskilling to a point when you have more junior people, if you um, uh, consider that example again of writing a story, right? Um, uh, there might be a person who is pretty new to the job and, and doesn't, doesn't have a lot of experience with doing this yet, right? So um, the tool might not give them the perfect story after this little conversation I talked about with like the full requirements and everything, but it will give them a leg up on how do you actually write a story but because it actually spits out uh, um, scenarios, given when then scenarios, you know, and like different combinations of givens with different uh, then results, right? So it actually then gives you examples exactly in your context and helps you learn how to write a story. So that would be um, um, uh, another another type of knowledge exchange where it's just about the skill of writing a story about or about the skill of, as a developer, how do I break down my tasks um, for this particular story? The the Let's go further on in this conversation back to junior developers because you 
had concerns about how they should interact with these things. You mentioned it in your blog post. By the way, the blog post that uh, we are now mentioning and talking about is one that is linked from one of uh, Begita's uh, memos, and it's a, a, from a colleague of hers in, in China, in Thought Works China. And basically what this person does is describe the system, describe the te tech stack, and it does so in, in, in the shape of sort of like constraints. It, it refers, it, it serves those as, 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 as a domain for the LLM and say, you need to stick to this. And then this person requests a, the, a list of things, a list of actions that the LLM will perform to solve the task with the constraints and requirements that have been put in place. And then what this person does is refine, fine tune, uh, reorder, and go through the listicle of actions that the LLM has provided to solve the matter, because most of it is quite frankly good, but this, the, 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 your colleague will reorder them and refine them so that he returns them to the LLM, say, proceed in this way, and then the LLM will produce the results that need to be reviewed again. So it's a fantastic approach. Yeah, go ahead. So I think there's two things here. One is, um something similar to what is also called chain of thought prompting, right? That you actually, you don't uh, ask a model to give you a result for a problem that you have, like uh, for a big problem that you have at once, but you kind of go step by step. So um, in in his example, um, he would go, um, you know, he would first go, give me a list of tasks that, you know, how should I implement this step by step? And then he can sanity check that implementation plan. And only after a few steps, he would maybe go now give, generate some test code from me or something like that, right? So that's one point, like this like step-by-step. Step. And the other thing is that it's it's always used as an assistant, right? Not as like, oh yeah, now the whole problem is solved and I just committed to the code base, right? It's always an assistant. And um, what I really like is this thing of like, it's almost a form of ideation, like maybe pointing me to things that I might not have considered yet. So if we uh, think about architecture, for example, like I've... I've been very skeptical about using this for architecture decision-making or analyzing architectures, but I haven't actually tried a lot myself yet. But um, if, you, if you think about this not as like, it will give me exactly my architecture analysis, but it will point me to weak spots that I might have, um, then it could actually be really useful, right? So if you imagine you describe your, your architecture and then you say, where are the weak spots? And there's usually so many trade-offs to consider and context where I'm at a weak spot in one context might be a strength in another, right? So we all know that architecture is full of trade-offs, right? So then maybe the, the LLM will give me um, five potential weak spots and three of them are obviously nonsense. I see it immediately, right? But then there's two where one of them I'm like, oh, that's actually right. And there's one where I would be like, oh, I hadn't thought about that yet. I should maybe like, is that actually a valid question? That might actually be a weak spot, right? So I really like this way of thinking about it, not as it will give me the perfect solution, but you know, can it point me in directions that I hadn't thought about yet? You actually, so you 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 haven't tested too too much architecture LLMs to design architecture, but you have tried it in other areas of the software delivery lifecycle and quite extensively. You you mentioned it in the in the blog post, and in fact, in terms of ideation specifically, it has helped you with testing. It has not helped you with with tests, with generating tests in some stances, but it has helped you sort of like think of ways of designing your tests with test coverage. Can you explain on that? And also your general impression about LLMs for code generation that you describe in the blog post too and, and, and other areas of software delivery that you might think that you have actually tested and you have strong op opinions about those. 
Yeah, maybe for the coding assistance. I mean, I've um, really enjoyed using these coding assistants that are directly in the IDE that kind of like just assist me in the way that I would usually write the software anyway, let's say, right? So, but that maybe make me a bit faster or, you know, uh, show me ways to solve things that I hadn't, that I hadn't thought about. And I've used them both for implementing functions, but also for implementing um, tests. And uh, um, I still remember like the, the first time I tried this. So this was in an existing, in an existing code base where I wanted to add a feature. And the first thing is immediately that it, it gives me a suggestion for my tests that just looks like the other tests in my test suite already, right? So it just reproduces the pattern from the rest of the test suite. Maybe otherwise I would have copied and pasted that. So maybe it's not such a big deal, right? But it kind of illustrates how this work, works, right? And then I, I describe uh, my test, right? And so in this case, this was JavaScript. So you would have like a, it should uh, give me a grouped, uh, um, it should group the list by cities or something like that, right? And um, so I was actually quite impressed by the um, by the test setup that it gave me. Again, it was reproducing the, the the test data setups that the utility methods that I already had in the test, and then also sometimes the the assertions, the the expectations that it would generate for me. So um, and by the way, sometimes this works, sometimes this doesn't. I've had really impressive uh, cases where this has worked and really cases where I was like, yeah, this wasn't really helpful, you know? So th that's like one of the things I think that is now that you cannot learn from a training or something like that. You actually have to use it to kind of get a bit of a feeling for it and also learn to move on when it doesn't work, right? Um, and in terms of like, do you use it for tests or implementation? This is like a question that a lot of people have. Um, there was recently a, um, a very nice uh, post by Michael Feathers as well, where he was talking about manually writing the test and then using the coding assistant to help you with the implementation, because he felt like this is like a, a this is the quality control, right? If I manually write the test, then that is my level of quality control, because otherwise, if I generate the test and I generate the implementation, <laughs> then all I'm doing is reviewing the work, like as if I'm doing a code review for somebody else, right? But how do I, so I actually have to spend the time on, on, on reviewing it. Um, and so, yeah, like um, I, sometimes maybe I would prefer with a function to just think from scratch about all the scenarios I have that I want to test, right? And if a tool gives me six scenarios, then I would kind of have to think just where are the gaps, which cognitively I find a little bit more exhausting than actually just like in a structured way doing it myself, right? So I think it depends on how complex the function is that I'm writing, how experienced I am in the tech stack, how much it matters, you know, is this a POC or is this like production code? It depends on a lot of factors, I think. For me, you would qualify as a senior developer. So someone that is, yeah. Thank you. Is very... Thank you. <laughs> Sorry for that. But uh, but yeah, it's clear, right? And you would you would certainly look for assistance in 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 this case. But let's go back to the junior developer, right? I think that this person will find it helpful to incorporate coding best practices of the new workplace that this person has just joined, and will if this has been properly fed and structured and uh, and incorporated into the uh, code suggestion tool, it will certainly help. But yes, this person is lacking this previous experience um, and this sort of like uh, sharp eye to detect quality or, or hallucinations and stuff like that. So 
it is a bit of because most most vendors out there are claiming that this uh, LLMs for code generation for code assistance, I should say, uh, will reduce senior developer oversight on the one hand and will accelerate um, junior developer onboarding. Let's call it this way. But you, I think you mostly agree with that. But you had a, a few concerns, right, related to what I just said about this lack of um, well experience and, and sharp eye for detecting. Uh, um, faults, for example. Yeah, I definitely think it's a bit more complicated than just saying, oh, there's now this thing that can tell somebody exactly how to write a test in JavaScript or something like that. And so that's an obvious skill, up upskilling that a senior doesn't have to do, right? Um, so, um, yeah, you, you have to still, you are still in charge as the developer, right? You still have to, you know, you are responsible for the code that you're committing in the end and you have to judge what comes out of this machine, right? And let's not forget that these models are trained on uh, uh, a lot of code that is out there on the internet. And I think we all know that not all of that code out there on the internet is perfect, uh, far from it, right? So, um, and the other thing is also that um, I was talking before about how these coding assistants pull context from other files in your code base, right? But is your code base perfect, right? It, might, it, it doesn't distinguish between things and other files that are good or that are bad or things that where you actually want to start refactoring them and use a different pattern, right? It will just like amplify everything around you, uh, around your context. And it doesn't discriminate between quote unquote good and quote unquote bad things, you know? So it can actually also happen that, you know, and then maybe some things it's really useful for me as a junior because it repeats the patterns that others have been using in the code base, but it also repeats the patterns that maybe you don't want to repeat or that a senior developer decided, in this case, I'm going to do it this way because I can make an exception here, but usually you don't want to do it that way, right? So I think it's like a, a bit of a mixed bag. And again, it depends on the other factors. Like uh, if it's like a really prevalent tech stack and it's like very straightforward type of code, then the chance of hallucination is also lower. So then maybe it's not so risky. And I think it can definitely help you quickly learn a, a few of the things and maybe you don't have to go and ask somebody else, right? But um, there, there was actually a, um, uh, a study done by McKinsey where one of their findings was that uh, junior developers sometimes even take longer when they're using a coding assistance tool than when they're not using one. So. Yeah, it depends. <laughs> mm. But about the about the fact that it's trained in open, in openly in, in available data, right? Because I've got a follow up question about compliance, licenses, and I know it's a boring topic, but let's let's take. Uh, I want to know if you have come across concerns, especially I guess from in this case managers about uh, IP source code being leaked and stuff. But let's leave it to the for the end. Um, yeah, it it is true that if it's if LLMs, especially the larger ones, are trained on the internet, let's put it in a very uh, unprecise way, uh, then the prevalence of JavaScript code will be much bigger in uh, in the data set than let's say Lua or whatever. And you've got a colleague that actually posted a blog post recently that you linked from your memos, I think, that was quite frankly surprised about the quality of the Rust code suggestions that X given tool gave him, right? And he's also senior and stuff like that. I mean, the, I think the Rust code base, the global Rust code base is growing quite dramatically. So I wouldn't qualify, I wouldn't describe Rust as a, 
language such as I don't know Lisp, uh, yeah, Lisp or Lua, whatever. I think there's plenty of code. Uh, but yeah, is, is there a dramatic difference between requesting code suggestions, code completions, uh, interacting with code assistant with AI assistants, requesting answers for JavaScript or for minor languages? Is there the difference is so stark? I mean, I haven't done like a study and tried like lots of different languages, right? So I also just have anecdotal evidence and like Eric's post about Rust is one of them. And he almost described it like he needed to nudge it a little bit, right? So, and but once you have some code yourself, again, the pattern matching also kicks in and uh, it actually gets um, gets a bit better as well, right? Um, and um, I mean, like one experience I had was I was uh, using um, a chat interface, so go, GitHub Copilot also has a chat and I was using that and I was asking it to, I was describing the design of my code base to it and asking it to create a mermaid.js diagram for me. I don't know mermaid.js very well. It's a diagrams as code framework. I have actually not used it myself before. So I also did not know the syntax. And it then I uh, asked it to generate a class diagram and it did that and I just couldn't get it to render and I kept like trying to fix it, you know, and it just wouldn't work. And after five minutes or so, I went to the mermaid.js website and it turned out that the syntax was quite different from what it had suggested to me. So um, that's an example of the, like mermaid.js that will also not be that much stuff out on the internet, right? But then, I mean, interestingly, I just like copied and pasted the example from the documentation website into the chat that gave the model the pattern that I was looking for and it actually applied it correctly to my description of the of the code base from before. So with that nudge again, with like here's the pattern that I want you to apply, that then actually worked. It is clear that LLMs are great to for understanding or, or being trained on structured code, but they are also great when the prompt, the request from the user is also properly structured, right? So we need to learn that proper prompting, or we need to be helped with it. Because uh, plain syntax-free uh, English or German or Spanish is 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 difficult for them. They the, the prompts need to be uh, heavily structured. So I came across a study from from a few researchers that studied the typical day day a days what a good day's work would look for a developer at Microsoft. Uh, they I think they surveyed five thousand. I can't remember. They didn't segment as far as I remember between. Uh, senior developers and junior, which I think would have been interesting because I think it would have shown patterns, but if I'm wrong, it's, it's what. But in any case, they gave us what a typical developer life looks like. What One day in, in the life of one of these people looks like. And it turns out that they don't code that much. Uh, they divided, they code more than eight hours a day, which I mean, probably is not surprising for anyone. Uh, they do work more than eight hours a day. It was, I think on average, it was nine, nine and something, nine and a half. Uh, but they they divided the all the activities that a typical developer does into three buckets. So development heavy activities in in which code is within only fifteen percent of the time devoted to development heavy activities is actual coding, which I eighty four minutes to be precise of of one typical day. Bug fixing, testing, blah blah blah. Then collaboration heavy is the second uh, bucket. Collaboration collaboration heavy activities, so meetings, email, or those things that are more iffy for the developer in general. And finally, other activities. Uh, meetings take up 15%. Anyway, those were interesting data to me, data points and so forth. But of the, I guess, development 
heavy activity. So coding, bug fixing, testing, specification, reviewing code and documentation. I was wondering, do you do you feel that any of these is particularly suitable for this or any of these is particularly unsuitable for being assisted with an LLM for those? Um, I think so the examples you gave for development heavy is like coding, bug fixing, testing, writing specifications, right? And documentation, right? So I think for all of them, maybe in different ways, um, the tools can help to a point like we were talking about coding a lot already, uh, testing again, you can, you can generate tests, you can generate test data, right? I mean, I guess there's tools already out there for generating synthetic test data. But this again gives us like a little thing so we don't ha even have to set up a big tool but you know we can use this this chat or this interface this coding assistant that we already have in our ide for all kinds of different tasks right so i think that's the power a little bit like even if we now try to do some of the things with it that we already have tools for it's still it's kind of nice that it's just like all there and we can also apply it to things that uh is maybe a new framework that we don't have a tool for yet or something right then writing specifications, we were just talking about the example of this, like kind of having a back and forth with uh, uh, with an LLM and, you know, finding gaps in our specification, maybe helping somebody learn how to write a story. Um, documentation, I find an interesting one because a lot of people mention it because it seems obvious, right? Like, oh, this is about summarizing things. LLMs are good at summarizing things and writing text and, you know, um, but I'm like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm still a bit skeptical because I don't think that maybe the problem with writing documentation is the time that it takes us to write the text, you know? Like it's, uh, I mean, I could talk about documentation for hours as well, but I, I imagine like a world where then everybody just keeps generating documentation, but nobody reads it, you know? <laughs> like it's still about figuring out like what is the right level of documentation, the right type of documentation thinking about the personas you have for your documentation and what type of thing you need there, right? And also, um, I mean, there is some like, uh, there is some promising potential, I think, about like, uh, we were doing some work with uh, mainframe code bases and uh, that had to be trend like COBOL code that has to be rewritten in Java, right? And there's usually quite a lot of work involved in the reverse engineering and what does it actually do? And we've seen some potential there in like uh, a large language model also helping with that reverse engineering, understanding that code and maybe even like giving everybody a leg up to transform it into Java code. So that would almost be a little bit like similar to documentation in the sense that you need to uh, um, quote unquote understand the code. <laughs> and so with documentation um, for your classes, maybe let's say you have a code base that has been written by other people and you want to understand it, right? Let's say you then ask the model, um, explain to me what this class does, right? I've actually tried that with one of the classes in my code base. And it was doing a decent job of describing uh, what it did, but it wasn't, you know, if I had just read the code, I would have come to the same conclusion because, I mean, not to toot my own horn, but the class name and the variables and the, the method names were actually quite descriptive, you know? If you imagine now a class that uh, is not as human readable, it also becomes less readable to an LLM, right? Because it's about language, right? We've also seen that with um, coding assistants, the more descriptive we make our variable names and function names, the better the suggestions are for what comes next, right? So there's a bit of this, like, we can't have this shortcut maybe of explain this code to me that we ourselves cannot read because the LLM will also not be able to read it or reason about it. So 
Yeah. I guess in a way, yeah. Uh, so LLMs are definitely not computer science majors, right? They don't understand the inner structure of code, the logic between that, but they are probably deep readers, right? Deep understanders of the language at a human level, let's say, at a, that than we are, right? And they are able to find these patterns better than we do, but they still struggle with, right? That's that. Uh, understanders, maybe like a, still like a, that's why I use quote unquote so much. It's like a, it's like something that I overuse anyway, I guess. But in this case, it's also like they don't really understand it, right? It's like a pattern matching that that happens there. Very advanced pattern matching that seems like understanding to us, right? So we always have to keep that in mind. But in the end, it doesn't matter like if they understand it or if they if they just pattern match. Or in the end, it matters if it's useful for us, right? That's what a colleague of mine always says to me when I'm skeptical about models reasoning about things. Is it useful is always his question. Yeah, yeah, true. That, I think that's the ultimate question. Um, and, and I think they actually proved to be, and we'll, let's not let's not forget, we're in like the early stages of this thing. I know that researchers in this area have been fighting and, and working and providing uh, uh, developments on this for, for ages now. But for the consumers, I guess uh, it's, we are in the most incipient ages and it will just get better in 10 years time, this podcast. This recording will be completely outdated, and yeah, definitely, to, yeah. <laughs> to listen to the 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 the, the silly questions that I've been doing. I would and maybe uh, maybe can I just get back to what you were saying about the developer day, right, and the development heavy activities, collaboration, and other activities, right? So the way um, so um, the way some of my colleagues at ThoughtWorks look at it, who who think a lot about engineering effectiveness and waste in the process and overhead, right, like. Um, uh, all of these things like handovers and relearning, rework, all of those things. Like, um, I don't know if you're aware of the seven wastes of software development described by the Poppendieks. They're making like this analogy to the seven wastes of lean manufacturing. So it's ju as, just as a side note, but there's a lot of waste, right? So, and if you think about the categories there, like find, finding information, not finding information takes a lot of time and overhead, right? slow feedback on things, uh, cognitive friction, friction in the developer experience. So those are all sources of waste, right? And so we're really interested in like, how can these tools help us reduce that waste as well, right? The, the waste that sits between all of these activities that we even spell out, right? And finding information definitely is one that, um, finding information in context, just as I'm doing a specific task, right? It's like, it can be a powerful one. Uh, feedback, reducing uh, feedback loops by, uh, we were just talking about, I don't have to ask one of the experienced developers on the team, or um, I uh, maybe, uh, you know, I have this like ideation session with the LLM and I might find things earlier. So that's like a really interesting area, I think, to see where can we reduce waste. By the way, going back to two things, and this will be uh, we are, we're heading to the end of the conversation would be the developer experience because you mentioned that uh, at the beginning of our conversation uh, the the case in which I would find this code assistance to be most uh, useful which would be within deep context literally within the ID while I'm coding uh, again let's remember that that's only according to this study 15% of my time which is plenty of people more but that so but you did mention that other or in your research you found that people will go out from within the id and search in chat tpt or the website and so forth so i'm interesting do you have any opinions about where is this uh, uh, llms for code assistance 
best, uh, most used, and, and why? Is it literally within the IDE with the Excel, uh, not switching context, or, or that's not necessarily a, 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 a strong requirement? I think it's not necessarily a strong requirement, but it can help, right? Depending on the task that it's helping you with, it gives you more boost than, than with others, maybe. What about the commands you run? Are they, uh, do, do, does it differ from product to product a lot, or are they most standardizing upon the ways you're, the user is requesting help for code suggestions, for code completions, but also for chat? Are those are those in your experience well integrated within the IDE? Is it does it feel like a natural uh, way of behaving? So you mean the, the like how I'm prompting it, yeah? Correct. Yeah. So um, I mean, when you're writing the code, it's basically as you type, right? So you can write a comment, or you you write the um, the signature of your your function, and then it uh, um, suggests things for how to implement the function, right? So that's relatively uh, intuitive. But also depending on the tool, on the IDE extension, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes you don't get a suggestion and you don't understand why, and sometimes it gives you just one liner, sometimes it gives you multiple lines. So it's a bit like uh, hit and miss uh, sometimes, right? And I really enjoy like having a chat in my IDE for the like quick questions, right? Like I was recently doing something with Python and I don't work that frequently with Python. And I had a very simple, stupid question. I think I it was something to do with like, where do I put an additional dependency? like which which file is that or something and then it's just like a lot faster to do that with a chat that i have directly in the ide than oh, going to the browser loading loading google or DuckDuckGo or whatever search engine <laughs> scrolling through the results scrolling through a long page somewhere right and these are also things where i expect the the answer also to be pretty good right and by the way so it's like in a way it's um I mean, Stack Overflow has had a big drop in in user activity, right? It's it's actually quite significant. The last time I looked at their numbers was already a bit ago, but they had a drop like a forty percent, I think, in the frequent posters on the site, right? And like this is also like a little bit heartbreaking, right? Because this these yeah. types of communities like Stack Overflow is like has always been like a pillar of like how you learn, right? And like people sharing with each other, right? So and um, and it was a trust I, element, right? Because you could see yeah. the upvotes of a suggested uh, a solution, right? And you could see actually tweaks to that below. So there was a that that is that sort of like there's two things that actually was in, in my mind for the next question, which is the sort of like the trust element, right? Is this LLM is proposing this solution, this this piece of code, this snippet? But how do I know it's correct? I'm trusting the, the machine. While while in Stack Overflow, I could trust the not only the human proposing it, uh, but also the upvotes, right? The the crowd. Yeah, and I I have I, I talk a little bit about that in one of the memos on Martin Fowler's side about you know where I'm trying to generate a function and I compared it actually to the upvoted ones on 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 Stack Overflow, right? But I also sometimes wonder. I mean, if we all start using this now, right? But the technology world will keep turning, right? There might be new languages, new frameworks. Uh, there's like uh, newer versions of frameworks that have quite different API, right? So in a lot of areas, I wonder if at some point the answers from chats will, from LLM chats will get a lot less useful again. So we will have to start going back and like asking questions again and sharing, right? So I sometimes wonder if we live in this golden age of like the, the, these models are really useful for us right now, but there will be kind of like a, will have to be kind of like a back and forth, right? And there's also... Um, 
there's also some studies I, I think i just read that about uh image generators so i'm not sure if it's the same for text but they, they uh how apparently the the models that can generate images um they they kind of start breaking down if you train them with images that have been generated by them so if we start like cranking out more and more code that has been generated by these tools you know, will we never be able to have new patterns emerge in these suggestions? Like, because statistically, what we're doing right now will just like dominate us forever. <laughs> I don't know. We will see. I think I read the same about code, uh, by the way, not only images, but uh, the, and the quality of the suggestions consistently going down, not dramatically, but consistently going down. Um, by the way, I should note that uh, Stack Overflow has released what I understand is an AI code assistant. So I, I can only presume, because I've not used it, I think this is literally, this happened literally this week, maybe last week, so at the end of July 2023. And I, I can only presume that the suggestions it makes will also incorporate provenance or, or some, some sort of like uh, attribution to the thread, to the page, to the conversation in the Stack Overflow in which, uh, in which it was made. Is it a coding assistant? Is it a coding assistant or like a chat interface that gives you access to the Stack Overflow knowledge base or also to your hosted own Stack Overflow honest, knowledge I, base? I, I think, yeah. Something I don't like really that. Know. Look, look yeah. it up, listeners, please. We don't want to say wrong things about exactly, the product. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Check it out because still, regardless of the, the as, as Birgitta just mentioned, the, the contributions, the activity in the site going down, supposedly because of the uh, increased time i guess in in uh, in within the id with with by users receiving these this input in their id instead of going to the site and so forth let's not make a causation there when we don't know but um yeah i think it's good from a stack overflow which is a very trustworthy source of good um uh coding practices and and so forth that they are at least working their way out with uh, AI and 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 starting to uh, provide new ways of consuming the information they're using it and providing um, uh, solutions there. Which reminds me of the thing that I wanted to ask you, and this this is my last question actually. Have you come across? Uh, this is a bit uh, a slight twist to the conversation. There are model, models are being trained while being used. Is this is this a correct assumption? Like every time I ask a, a code assistant for, for a code suggestion or I ask it a question in the chat, that information gets fed to the model, right? The 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 way in which we the we interact with it, but also the code, right? You mentioned that most of these tools will take a copy of the lines preceding the request, maybe the whole work workspace, maybe other files. Uh, so I'd like you to delve into what is it that you know it takes a copy of to use it to suggest a, a snippet or a line of code. And I guess if anyone in your research so far, which is again, very, very short because you just started in the role, has uh, uh, told you about concerns about this code remaining in the model, in a model that they don't own and potentially being leaked outside. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we have a lot of clients as well who have, uh, um, yeah, serious concerns about data confidentiality in, in general, right? Or like, and in this case, like code confidentiality. So this is definitely a, 
frequently asked question by by every client uh, that we're talking to about about this topic. So yeah, so the the prompts basically, right? So the snippets that get sent from the IDE to the backend um, to give you a suggestion, they can potentially by the tool provider. They might be persisted by them, right? And they might be reused for training later. I think this live training that's like it's a bit like muddy waters for me. I'm not 100% sure, but I think this live training is actually like quite a it's not an easy thing, right? So, but it might be stored for later to train the next version of it, right? So when you choose the tool, it's important to look at the provider's kind of terms and conditions, what they say about this, right? So a lot of them say that they discard the requests immediately after they gave you a suggestion, right? And and that they won't be training new models with your, with your prompts, right? So you should look for those uh, terms and conditions, and then you have to decide if you trust the provider of this tool, right? So, because there's like different levels of trust maybe you have for um, for GitHub or for, for Google or for Tab9 versus like a, a small startup that just started doing this five months ago, right? Um, and then there's of course also uh, the, 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 the impact of this, right? Thinking about, so let's say probability is reduced because you've looked at the terms and conditions and the provider, but uh, what is the impact of your code showing up in somebody else's suggestions, right? So um, that can be then your particular, let's say, threat model as a company, right? Also, how specific your um, your uh, your domain is, right? Because like the code will also like drown, and even if again, even if the prompts were reused for for um, training, right? This might drown in the sea of like all of the other pieces of code that process a list or that build an e-commerce site, or you know. And usually with the coding assistance, you also get quite small snippets of suggestions. So at which level they're actually like original or identifiable or something, that's um, that's the question, right? I think the most, uh, there were some stories in the press like a few months ago about secrets actually showing up in suggestions. So obvious secrets and, you know, so that's of course the one that, that sounds, um, uh, that's, it's like a very risky category, right? Like, um, um, so, no, so that's there, there one. Is- there is a big lawsuit against, I believe, I hope I'm, I'm right, but I believe it's Copilot, so GitHub, and I guess Microsoft, about Copilot spe- uh, suggesting literal chunks of code that is um, um, copyrighted yeah, um, yeah, 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 in, yeah. in a way that is not permissive enough for it to be used. So now the, the court will decide if that's fair use or not. But yes, it's it's legitimately difficult, like you mentioned, to to understand the difference between those two. Just with the secrets, I mean, then there to think again about the, the impact and the risk, right? Like there's some, in the tools, you can um, also control usually to a certain extent which files you want to be readable by the tools. So to, to make sure that it excludes the files where you might have secrets, then it's a bad practice to have secrets in your in your code base anyway, right? So then it would be about how mature are your practices already? Are you using secrets managers and stuff like that? So I think the the secrets part is the most critical one maybe to to consider. And um, then also looking at the tool provider, what um, what are they saying about features? Like, do they have like vulnerability filters or filters for patterns like that in their backend before they actually send you the the suggestions? Because that is also something that some of the tools. In fact, I, I would actually mention too that I think Copilot actually um, uh, implemented such thing um, to so that uh, the the LLM might not be aware of licensing uh, and suggest a literal 
quote of unpermissive code, not quote, a snippet of unpermissive code. But then the filter will come in and say, no, this this is not going out as a suggestion because it will it will um, break the license. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a whole world in licensing and so forth. And you and I are not uh, lawyers, uh, fortunately enough. Uh, so, but but it's really interesting, and it will eventually define a lot of the space. But we we should focus on the software engineer and the software delivery. And there's the there's the legal side, but there's also the like, do we feel okay with that, right? Like, what? How do we feel about that? Similar to this tech overflow thing, right? But yeah, that's for a whole other conversation. Yeah. I, my last question is like, because we talked about the dev side of DevOps, the dev side of the software delivery lifecycle, but software delivery. We've talked about architecture, the shortcomings of LLMs for architecture. We've talked about code generation, testing, um, I guess integration builds and stuff. But uh, uh, my last question to you is that, like, where do you see this? Do you see LLMs uh, being applied in deployments, um, uh, in infrastructure, for code, as code, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, is there a, I know that there are several experts in that field in ThoughtWorks and might not be one of them, but what are what are your opinions on that on the appliance of LLMs uh, to specifically the deployment bit of the software delivery? Mm. Yeah, I was actually just chatting with Keith Morris about this, like the who wrote the infrastructure as code book. <laughs> so I'm going to I'm going to sit down with him next week to to get a bit of his insights. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you can generate infrastructure code with it, of course, right? I've actually heard like conflicting observations about this. Like I've heard some people say it works especially well with infrastructure code or Terraform code and stuff like that because it's like declarative and others saying like, oh, for me, it didn't work with infrastructure code at all. But yeah, th so that's like same as uh, code generation. You can apply it in that space as well, right? Um, I mean, I think in uh, deployment, um, a lot of what we want to do, actually, we need like a solid basis of deterministic automation, right? Like actually, like in ThoughtWorks for our, we have like kind of like some, you know, first principles or values that we like to apply when we're doing software delivery. And one of them is repeatability, right? Like in, in especially in continuous delivery and pipelines, we want things to be repeatable so that we can, without cognitive load and with like low risk and with the feeling of safety, we can just repeat doing things and we know they're very probably going to work, right? And LLMs are, you know, are not, uh, uh, their strength is not repeatability <laughs> determinism, right? So they will give you different things all the time. So I think they're more uh, well used maybe for things like, I don't know, exploratory testing, chaos engineering, stuff like that, right? There's some people who are using um, this type of um, this type of AI now also to power agents for simulations, right? I think Microsoft has built a little agent with ChatGPT that can solve uh, that can solve tasks in Minecraft, for example. So I think maybe for stuff like this, they're they're better suited. But um, there should be I think for deployment and continuous delivery, we need like a nice solid basis of repeatable deterministic automation. I honestly think. And this is a conversation that I had with Keith uh, years ago about GitOps, which he's not a big fan of. I am. And since GitOps is basically, it is a system of deployment for, especially suited for Kubernetes, right? Uh, maybe for other um, environments, but I think that mostly it was invented for Kubernetes. It might be applied elsewhere, but it, it will basically have your system declared, like you said, declared the desired state of the system is declared in a data format in, in Git or in any other version control, but let's let's equate uh, Git to to version control because it's the most used. And therefore, if that 
following the example of your colleague uh, in the post that we described at the beginning of the conversation, if that is the constraint of the of any of the proposed solutions that the LLM will give to the prompt that I suggest, then it might actually become slightly more deterministic. Like you said, it's impossible because they are they are designed to provide. Um, slightly different answers every time, but if the constraints haven't moved and the requirements of the system are well-defined in declarative terms, and GitOps, again, defines the system in such a way and then allows Kubernetes to reconcile that constantly with the production environment, with the actual state, so desired state will always mimic uh, the actual state. And if there's drift, it will advise of, of such thing. It gets more complicated, but it's basically at the at the conceptual level. I think it's a good candidate, but let's see. Yeah. The question is if it gives us an added value on top of what we already have in that space, right? And if it's then worth the risk of having it less deterministic, but um, it might yeah. not be I mean, exactly exactly. I'm, at, at these days, I'm not saying impossible to anything at the moment because you know the hype the hype out there oh my is God, pulling yeah. us in all kinds of different directions. So let's see. <laughs> Honestly, I'm very jealous of your title. It sounds fancy, but in, and I say this is a joke, but in reality, it must be, you must be thrilled. So I'm really jealous. I hope you have a really long career in that role. And, uh, and yeah, that we get together any other time uh, with this technology being much more mature than it is now and that we have other, other areas to explore. But so far, it has been a fantastic conversation. And I only can tell everyone to read the memos that you've already written in Martin's blog post, uh, blog, apologies, to read the others tagged as generative AI. There's a few others that we've mentioned in this, in this uh, conversation. Um, but yeah, I really look forward to reading the next one and, and, and so forth. Thank you so much, Birgitta, for being with us. Thanks, Jody, for the conversation.